Assalamu alaikum and Ramadan Mubarak. Welcome back to Season 5 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this series, we are discussing the events of World War I that led to the partition of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 518, Arabs and Ottomans. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Throughout much of 1915, the British had been trying to convince Sharif Hussein to revolt against the Ottomans. While the British made vague promises to Sharif Hussein, they also made secret deals with the French for the same territory. Still unwilling to devote resources to the Middle East, the Allies hoped an Arab revolt might lead to a quick victory. The Allies weren't doing well in the Middle East, having been defeated at Gallipoli and Kut al-Amara. Much of the blame for Britain's failures fell on Herbert Horatio Kitchener, the British Minister of War. And with that, let's begin our discussion of the Arab Revolt. Nationalism and World War I Nationalism was the primary force that led to the tragedy known as World War I. There are many definitions for nationalism, but the one I believe most fits this story is exaggerated, passionate, or fanatical devotion to a national community. While it may seem odd to our modern, cynical minds, nationalism and nationalistic ideas were rampant in 19th century Europe. To be clear, there is nothing wrong with pride or love for one's nation country, culture, or ethnic heritage. But there is a problem when that love leads to feelings of superiority or demonizing members of other groups. And this is what happened in Europe. Nationalistic pride led European governments and leaders to imagine themselves superior to their rivals and confident in their ability to win in any armed conflict. This sentiment also led smaller groups to develop their own nationalist aspirations. Nationalism exacerbated the tensions between the Ottomans and the Armenians. Nationalism led Gavrilo Princip to assassinate Prince Franz Ferdinand and his wife. And nationalism also led to the Arab Revolt of 1916. Before nationalism took hold in the Ottoman Empire, there was little conflict between Arabs and Turks. These two groups had lived and fought both alongside and against each other for centuries. Unlike most modern nations, including the United States, the Ottoman Empire did not maintain records of ethnicity or race. When an Ottoman citizen had to fill out government paperwork, she did not have to tick a box stating whether she was white or black or Arab or Turk. The only demographic that mattered was her religion. Throughout much of Syria and Turkey and Mesopotamia, there was no such thing as a pure Arab or a pure Turk. The various ethnic groups of the Ottoman Empire had intermingled and mixed so much, the only thing separating one group from another was their language and their religion. Turkish nationalism and Arab nationalism both existed long before World War I. It was Turkish nationalists in the 19th century who sought to modernize the Ottoman Empire along Western standards. 
These early nationalists called themselves young Ottomans and were more focused on the interests of the empire rather than the interests of any particular ethnic group. However, these modest ideas took a different shape as ethnic tension grew within their ranks. The young Ottomans became the young Turks, and the young Turks injected a strain of hypernationalism into the empire's governmental structure. Turkish nationalism alienated Arab nationalists and justified their growing resentment of the Ottoman Empire. Unlike their Turkish counterparts, the Arab nationalists could not conduct their affairs in public, leading to the growth of various secret societies. These secret organizations, along with Sharif Hussein and the spy Al-Faruqi, are what convinced Herbert Horatio Kitchener that millions of Arabs were ready to revolt against the Ottomans. The Death of a British Legend By the spring of 1916, Lord Herbert Horatio Kitchener had lost most of his support among London's political elite. Though he was still officially the British Minister of War, he was no longer managing the day-to-day affairs of the war. The British cabinet had lost confidence in him and this feeling grew stronger as the war dragged on. The British had not even had much success in the Middle East, which was supposed to be Kitchener's area of expertise. Over Kitchener's protestations, they had retreated from Gallipoli. And then, the British were humiliated in Mesopotamia at Kuta Lamara. And even though Kitchener was not responsible for the siege at Kut and its many failed rescue attempts, he was in charge and the blame fell on him. Prime Minister Henry Asquith wanted to fire Kitchener, but the old soldier was still popular with the public. So the Prime Minister was stuck with a man he did not want to work with, but could not get rid of. Prime Minister Asquith needed an excuse to get Kitchener out of London without dishonoring him. That opportunity came in the spring of 1916. At this point of time, Russia was in serious trouble. Though they had experienced some early success against the Ottomans and the Germans, they were now being torn to pieces on the Eastern Front. The Russians started the war strong. They successfully invaded and occupied the German province of East Prussia in 1914, followed by a successful invasion of the Austro-Hungarian province of Galicia. However, two German counteroffensives in the spring and winter of 1915 forced the Russians to retreat, losing all the territory they had gained. Tsar Nicholas II, Emperor of Russia, was convinced these defeats were the result of poor leadership and had nothing to do with superior German firepower. He fired his top general and, against the advice of his cabinet, took direct control of the Russian military. Despite having no military experience, Nicholas II was convinced his presence alone would inspire the troops and propel them to victory. These fantasies were quickly dashed as the Russians continued to suffer heavy losses. Germany defeated them in two major battles in the spring and summer of 1916, resulting in the deaths of over 100,000 Russian soldiers. And now, the Russian forces on the Eastern Front faced catastrophe as they were running out of supplies. Russian infrastructure, which like the Ottomans was not good to begin with, 
was shattered by the stresses of the war. Nicholas II informed the British that Russia would need an immediate infusion of munitions and equipment in order to remain in the war. Prime Minister Asquith was only too happy to send Kitchener to negotiate a deal. In June 1916, Herbert Horatio Kitchener departed from northern Scotland in an armored ship escorted by two British battleships. When German intelligence found out about this trip, they placed underwater mines along the route between Scotland and Russia. British counterintelligence discovered the mines but were unable to get word to Kitchener's ship in time. Furthermore, in order to outrun German submarines, Kitchener's ship had steamed ahead at full power, leaving the British warships far behind. On June 5, 1916, Kitchener's ship struck a German mine and began to go down. The crew members tried to get him to escape in a lifeboat, but the old soldier refused to abandon ship. The survivors of the sinking ship reported that they last saw Kitchener standing on the ship's prow, dispassionate as it sunk beneath the waters. Kitchener's body was never recovered. Ottoman-Arab Relations Hussein ibn Ali al-Hashimi was appointed Sharif of Mecca by the Ottoman Sultan Abdul Hamid in 1908. This was a political move as the Sultan wanted to prevent the rival Young Turk movement from selecting one of their own supporters. When the Young Turks overthrew the Sultan the following year, Sharif Hussein managed to hold on to his position. He was a compromise candidate expected to heal the rift between the two opposing sides. However, Sharif Hussein did not trust the Young Turks and he owed his loyalty to the Sultan. Over the next several years, he opposed many of the Young Turks' attempts to modernize the empire, increasing the friction between them. This friction came to a head when the Great War started. In the early stages of the war, Sharif Hussein declared Mecca's neutrality. While this suited the British just fine, the Young Turks considered it nothing short of a betrayal. Sharif Hussein tried to negotiate offering his support in return for the release of Arab nationalists and guaranteed hereditary rule over Mecca. The Young Turks flatly refused. Al-Fatat was an Arab nationalist secret society formed in Paris in 1909. It was one of the leading forces behind the First Arab Congress of 1913, which was convened to discuss Arab autonomy within the Ottoman Empire. In January 1915, Fauzi Bakri, a member of Al-Fatat, secretly traveled to Mecca to ask Sharif Hussein to lead an Arab revolt against the Ottomans. At the time, Sharif Hussein did not respond favorably to this idea. However, a few days later, Sharif Hussein learned that the Young Turks had ordered Wahi Pasha, the Ottoman governor of the Hejaz, to remove and assassinate him. This was the turning point for Sharif Hussein and he finally agreed to throw in with the British. In March 1915, he sent his son Faisal Hussein to Istanbul to lodge a complaint with the Ottoman Caliph. But Faisal Hussein also had a couple of other missions. For one, he was to determine if the Sublime Port, that is, the Ottoman central government, supported the Young Turks' decision to remove him. But more importantly, Faisal Hussein was to meet with Arab military officers and secret society members in Damascus to discuss Arab independence. 
The information Faisal gathered during this trip was critical in determining Sharif Hussein's next moves. When Faisal returned, he informed his father that the message from Istanbul was clear. Support us in the war against the Europeans or face dismissal. And the message from the Arab nationalists was also clear. Join the British, revolt against the Ottomans, and create an independent Arab state. They presented Faisal with the Damascus Protocol, which sought an Arab state consisting of modern-day Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf, with Aden staying under British control. If the Hashemites supported the Damascus Protocol, Sharif Hussein would be declared King of the Arabs. The terms of the Damascus Protocol are what Sharif Hussein presented to the British in return for their support. The Arab Revolt Begins The Arab Revolt began around the same time that Lord Kitchener was lost at sea. The flag of the Arab Revolt was designed by Mark Sykes. Today, the flags of several Arab nations are based upon that British-sponsored symbol of Arab nationalism. It is ironic that the flag of Arab independence was designed by a man who betrayed Arab independence. After the war broke out, Ottoman intelligence officials ransacked the French consulates in Damascus and Beirut where they found documents linking Arab nationalists with British and French agents. Armed with this information, Jamal Pasha, the Ottoman minister of war, began a crackdown on Arab nationalists and Arab secret societies. This crackdown led to the arrest of 11 Arab conspirators, some of whom were connected to Faisal Hussein. Before they were executed in August 1915, these Arab nationalists were interrogated and almost certainly divulged valuable information. Another 21 Arab nationalists were executed the following year. In April 1916, Jamal Pasha informed Sharif Hussein that 3,500 soldiers would be coming through the Hejaz to meet up with German forces in southern Arabia. Sharif Hussein had a feeling the young Turks were on to him and believed these soldiers were coming to arrest him. It was time to make a decision. The young Turks were closing in. He had the promise of British naval and financial support, and he expected hundreds of thousands of Arabs to rally to his cause. In June 1916, Sharif Hussein finally announced the beginning of the Arab Revolt. The response was not as dramatic as the British would have liked. The British were hoping Arab units within the Ottoman military would join Sharif Hussein. Not a single Arab unit revolted and most Arab soldiers remained loyal to the empire. A few local tribes in the Hejaz did join the revolt, but they had been bribed with British money. And there were also a few Arab dissidents who joined the revolt, but they had defected to the British long before. Despite the tepid response, the Arab revolt was underway and Sharif Hussein had to follow through. And he began by shedding Muslim blood in Mecca. The Battle of Mecca Sharif Hussein had about 5,000 local tribesmen under his command, but these weren't professional soldiers. 
When they opened fire on the Ottoman garrison in Mecca on June 10, 1916, the Ottomans there did not even know that a revolt was underway. The Ottoman garrison in Mecca only housed about a thousand soldiers, but these were professional soldiers and they easily held off Sharif Hussein's forces. But they were still outnumbered and trapped inside the garrison. The stalemate in Mecca ended when the British got involved. British airplanes and warships bombarded the Ottoman port in Jeddah, then landed thousands of Muslim troops from British Egypt. The British Muslim troops quickly captured Jeddah and then moved on to Mecca to support Sharif Hussein. The Ottoman garrison held out for almost a week but could not defeat the combined British and Arab forces. British artillery tore through the garrison's outer walls and the Ottoman troops had no choice but to surrender. Sharif Hussein's forces also attacked the Ottomans in Ta'if with similar results. The Arabs were no match for the Ottomans and only prevailed when the British intervened. Ta'if fell in September 1916. The Arab revolt did not fare so well in Medina. Jeddah and Ta'if are both relatively close to Sharif Hussein's base of power in Mecca. However, Medina is almost 200 miles north of Mecca and any sort of invasion requires significant logistical support. Medina was also connected by railroad to Syria which allowed a steady stream of supplies and reinforcements to flow into the city. Finally, the Ottoman garrison in Medina was well defended and led by a capable general named Farhadin Pasha. So when Faisal Hussein attacked Medina in October 1916, the Ottomans easily beat him back. Unable to beat him directly, the Arab rebels resorted to sabotaging the railroad hoping to starve the Ottomans into submission. But General Farhadin Pasha always managed to repair it in time. Medina was a nut that the British and Arab rebels just could not crack. The railroad continued to operate throughout the entire siege and Medina remained under Ottoman control up until the end of the war. The British and their Arab allies were much more successful along the Red Sea coast. British naval and air superiority allowed them to capture most of the western coast of Arabia. Soon after capturing Jeddah, they went on to capture Rabah, about a hundred miles northwest of Mecca. From there, they captured Yanbu, further up the coast, about 90 miles west of Medina. The Reality of the Arab Revolt Within a few months, however, the Arab Revolt began to falter. It soon became obvious that most Arabs would not rally in support of Sharif Hussein, and everyone knew their military successes were mostly due to British support. Without British firepower, the Ottomans would have crushed the Arab revolt within a week. Sharif Hussein's small force could never take on the Ottomans in open battle. Most of his troops were simple Arab tribesmen who wanted the glory of fighting. And while no one could question their courage, they had no military discipline and could not stand against professionally trained soldiers. The Allies would have to commit thousands of troops to supporting Sharif Hussein's revolt, and this was something neither of them wanted. The Allies were reluctant to commit too many forces to the Middle East as they felt Europe was the greater need. And Sharif Hussein did not want thousands of European soldiers occupying Muslim lands. 
Even though many Arabs did not care for the Ottomans, they preferred to be ruled by Muslims than by Christians. The situation was further complicated by Sharif Hussein's insistence on only using Muslim soldiers. This frustrated the British command structure and complicated their logistics, but they had no choice but to comply. Hence, the British sent troops from Egypt and India, while the French sent troops from their North African colonies. In September 1916, an Arab officer named Aziz al-Masri came up with a new idea. We discussed Aziz al-Masri in episode 5 of this series when he defected to the British because of the Young Turks' nationalist agenda. Aziz al-Masri commanded the British forces in the Hejaz and he witnessed firsthand how poorly the Arab rebels performed in the field. Al-Masri suggested using the rebels as a guerrilla force instead. Perhaps they could provide a distraction for the Ottomans while the British did the real fighting. British officials in Cairo liked al-Masri's idea and felt it had some promise. They sent a government employee named Ronald Storrs to the Hejaz to investigate it further. Ronald Storrs brought along his friend, a British cartographer named Thomas Edward Lawrence. In the next episode, we'll discuss how a change in the British government ushered in a new direction for the war. We'll also see what plans the leaders of this new government have for the Ottoman Empire. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash WWI to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of these premium shows. Or, to make a one-time donation, visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate. Special thanks to Brother Zulfi Kasiroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And in this episode, we are discussing Mukhtar's rebellion. It was a rebellion within the rebellion of Ibn Zubair. And some say Ibn Zubair's rebellion was actually a caliphate, but be that as it may, we're going to talk about Mukhtar's Rebellion right now. This is part five of Mukhtar's Rebellion, 
and part 15 of the overall Ibn Zubair storyline. So before we get into the story, a quick recap of where we are so far. We mentioned how Mukhtar ibn Ubaid had taken over Kufa and most of the Maula or Mawali, which is plural for Maula of Kufa, had joined him. At first, the Ashraf, who were the Arab nobility of Kufa, at first they supported Mukhtar, but then they turned against him. They rose up against him and Mukhtar was able to put down this Ashraf rebellion. And then after putting down this rebellion, Mukhtar then began to purge Kufa of those responsible for the events at Karbala, which led to the death of Hussein ibn Ali, the son of Ali ibn Abi Talib, and the grandson of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In, in Mukhtar's purge, uh, many people were killed, led to various deaths and execution, and by the year 67 AH, Many of the Ashraf or Arab nobility in Kufa had fled. Some of them fled because they were involved in Hussein's death or somehow involved in Karbala and they feared being killed. And so they escaped Kufa to um, migrate to Basra. Many of them just fled Kufa because they just didn't want to live under Mukhtar and didn't want to deal with all the chaos going on in Kufa. After putting down the Ashraf rebellion, Mukhtar went on to defeat the Umayyads at the Battle of Khazir. The Umayyads had come from Syria and had briefly occupied Mosul, which is just to the north of Kufa. In this battle, the Battle of Khazir, Mukhtar sent his top advisor, Ibrahim al-Ashtar. Ibrahim al-Ashtar, with a much smaller force, defeated the Umayyads, recaptured Mosul, and in this battle, he killed well, we don't know if he killed him exactly, but within this battle, Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad, who was the primary figure responsible for the events at Karbala, was killed as well, bringing to fruition Mukhtar's promise, which was to get vengeance for the events at Karbala. With Mukhtar's success in Kufa and Basra, some Shiites were inspired by him to stage a rebellion in Basra as well. However, the rebellion in Basra was quickly put down before much damage was done. And so we begin in 67 AH, 67 years after the Hijrah, when Mus'ab ibn Zubair became the governor of Basra. Mus'ab ibn Zubair was the younger brother of Abdullah ibn Zubair, which is ibn Zubair's full name. 